0: The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirits Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Drinking Hour with me, David Kermode, here on Food FM. And it's episode three. In today's programme, setting up an urban winery, we'll talk to the former Fleet Street hack turned enologist whose passion for wine has led him to a disused windmill in Cambridge where he's poised to launch his inaugural cuvee with grapes from Essex's answer to the Napa Valley. Our desert island drink is a grape that's arguably the most noble of them all and probably the most misunderstood as well. We'll cross to Germany to talk to Paula Sidori about the trials and tribulations of being Riesling's number one fan. And does the humble spud make the best vodka? We'll talk to a potato farmer from Yorkshire who reckons his King Edwards make a smash mash. Plus, your wine and spirit recommendations hand-picked from the IWSC medal winners. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. There must be plenty of us who might dream of making our own wine, but it's a huge leap to turn that vision into reality. Chris Wilson spent a decent chunk of his career, like me, as a daily news journalist, in his case a Fleet Street hack, before turning his attention to wine, studying enology at Plumpton College and working vintages in wineries in California, Saarland and Sussex. Armed with that experience, a 23 square metre disused windmill and some grapes from Essex, he's serving up the first ever urban winery in Cambridge, Gutter and Stars. And his first wines are almost ready. And he joins us now from Cambridge. Hello, Chris.
2: Hello. Nice to be speaking
1: to you, David. Oh, well, thank you very much uh, for joining us on the drinking hour. It's very exciting that your uh, wines uh, are almost uh, upon us. Um, Setting up a winery in a disused windmill in Cambridge with grapes from Essex. It all sounds sort of suspiciously like a midlife crisis, but it's much more than that, isn't
2: it? Well, I had the midlife crisis a decade ago when I quit uh, my job at the Daily Mirror to, to go to Plumpton and, and study wine making, essentially my second degree. Um and yeah, that sort of led the the journey really to where I am now. And um it's uh it's been a, a sort of roller coaster the last twelve months really. This whole project was conceived as we sort of went into lockdown last sort of March April time. And um in two weeks the first wine will be ready for sale. It's uh yeah it's it's extraordinary really.
1: And uh, you know it's such a, a great story your your journey from uh, the newsroom to, uh, to to winemaking in a in a former windmill. But uh, we, we should give you the credit you're, you're due. You have made wine around the world. Tell us tell us where you've been uh, making wine.
2: Well, as as part of my enology um, uh, degree at Plumpton, we uh, we make wine there. So for year one year one and two we make we make the Plumpton wine. That's uh, that's that's the college's own wine, sparkling and still wines. So that's really where I cut my teeth in it. In, a, in an actual winery, learning to use the equipment and learning the science behind it, learning how to use a laboratory to, to assess what's going on with, with the wine throughout the process. Um, and then uh, also as part of, of the degree, you you, you spend a, you do a placement, a vintage placement in the, in the third and final year. Um, I was fortunate enough to go to uh, the Napa Valley in California for, for three months. Um, I, w- I worked in a winery uh, in Calistoga, a winery called Couvaison, which is actually a custom crush facility. So I worked on a number of different wines for a number of different producers. So instead of perhaps working at a winery where you just made, for example, Cabernet Sauvignon, I made wines from myriad grape varieties, whites, reds, sparklings, rosés. So it was a really um, brilliant experience and I, l- I loved Living in California, I'd love to go back there and do something similar again uh, in the future. And I also spent some time in Germany, um, making essentially uh, Riesling uh, in yeah in the Saarland, as you say. Um, that was phew, seven or eight years ago. And in between, I've I've been uh, uh, writing about wine rather than making wine. So it's been great to actually get back in the cellar again.
1: Yeah, I bet. And uh, great experience, as you say, working in a custom crush facility for an urban winery. Really, what? Why do you think uh, we should um, love the concept of a, an
2: urban winery? I just think it's another way of sort of tearing down barriers that that um, perceived barriers about wine and um, and making it more accessible to people. I mean. People will come to the the winery here in Cambridge. You've never been to a winery before and perhaps would, would not think to stop at one if they were in the countryside or on holiday in France but they can come here and see how things are done um, in the city essentially that's that's one thing that's great about it access to, to a market as well I've, I've got customers right there people don't have to get in a car and follow you know signs down a dirt track to a, wine, <laughs> to a winery to, to taste my wines they can uh, they can walk there or get on the bus or whatever um, but for me I'm not so keen on the sort of green-fingered varieties, green-fingered nature of, of the wine making. I don't want to spend too much time in the vineyard. I like the actual winemaking part of it. So not to have a, a responsibility for growing grapes is great for me. Um, and there's lots of opportunities in the UK to buy really good quality fruit and, and to do what I'm doing, um, have full control of the wine you make without um, having the, uh, the burden of a vineyard.
1: So tell us about your grapes. They're coming from Essex, which is not the place I immediately think of when I think of uh, the, the burgeoning um, scene in British wine. I, we should say English and Welsh wine, I, I suppose, not just English. Yeah. Um, um, this is the Crouch Valley, which you've likened to uh, Britain's Napa Valley. Now, you know the Napa Valley because you worked in California. Um, I smiled when I read that that comparison. But t- tell us about the area and why you draw that uh, uh, parallel.
2: I'll be honest, it was quite a glib comparison um, I (laughs) made, but um, in reality, I think there are some similarities. Um, Essex doesn't get a great deal of rainfall, Um, neither does Norfolk actually, which is another area I I would champion for for, for great quality fruit for English wines. Um, Because it's in the east of the country, a lot of the rain has disappeared by the time it gets here. Um, There's a lot of sunshine, there's higher growing degree days in the east of the country than there are in in the west and, and, and in the south so um it's it's a it's a great place to grow grapes and there's a lot of land especially in the crouch valley where it's traditionally been a, a farmland on for, for other crops arable crops so um there's opportunities and a lot of farmers are turning their land to vines which i think is is really exciting and i think over the next 5 or 10 years there's going to be uh, a huge increase in fruit um, available from Essex and from the Crouch Valley.
1: And what grapes are you dealing with in your first cuvées then?
2: So, um, I have three wines from the 2020 vintage that I've made. Uh, the first wine is uh, Bacchus, so it's 100% Bacchus. Um, uh, and then coming online soon, currently in, in barrel and tank in the winery, um, uh, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. So. All well-known varieties, too much better known globally than Bacchus. But um, I think Bacchus is a really interesting grape. It's um, it's it, from a winemaker's point of view, it's great because you can it, it, you can release it early. It's 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 a sort of punchy, aromatic, fresh white wine that that can uh, be released. Six months after, after um, finishing fermentation, um, and it's a good way of getting something to market quickly. It's also a good wine to drink in the summer. So it's perfect that, that a lot of English and Welsh wineries are releasing their Bacchus wines and other white wines um, this, this spring, this time of year.
1: Yeah, it is definitely a summer wine. It's often likened to uh, Sauvignon Blanc, a sort of Britain's answer to, uh, to Sauvignon. I, I'm not sure uh, that that uh, parallel absolutely follows through when you taste it. It's, it's got a lot, a lot more nettle character than, than Sauvignon Blanc, I think, hasn't it?
2: It can have. Yeah. I mean, I think Bacchus is changing and I think our perceptions of Bacchus uh, will change. Um, it, it it was very much a sort of workhorse grape here in the, in in the UK in that it 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 grew well um it was it was relatively uh disease resistant and it produced a, a bright punchy wine um if it's made in, in stainless steel you can get some of those characters that are similar to to sauvignon blanc perhaps um those sort of um aromatic um grassy punchy characters but increasingly, winemakers are doing different things with it. Uh, for example, um, fermenting or aging some of it in oak, in old oak, essentially. Um, I don't know of any any Bacchus that sees a great deal of new oak, um, but that, that adds different characters to it. You kind of shave off some of those more um, Sauvignon-style characters and add a little bit of texture and um, a, um, a little bit more sort of body and mineral character to the wine. So I think it can be many different things if treated differently.
1: Well, it sounds like my kind of Bacchus. Um, the name "Gutter and Stars" I really, really like. Uh, makes me think of the lying in the gutter but seeing the stars. Um, is that where the name is inspired from?
2: Absolutely, yes. Uh, well, that and the um, the the uh, record from. Uh, dance music producer, Fatboy Slim, his second album was called um, Halfway Between the Gutter and the Stars, which obviously is is a uh, a a nod to Oscar Wilde as well. So both of those things, I studied Oscar Wilde at school and used to tread the boards in an amateur fashion, um, so um, mm. used to love his plays. And that was a line that stuck with me and I'm a big music fan as well. So it's nice to have that link with, with the Norman Cook record as well. Um, You should see the long list we had for the names of the winery. (laughs) Um, I was revisiting it only this morning, actually. uh, And uh, I'm quite pleased we went with this and not some of the other ones. Oh, it's a great
1: name. And I really it's um, we're, uh, it's difficult to describe the labels um, um, because we we we're not a, a print publication here. We're talking across the airways, but you have the most fantastic artwork as well, uh, which looks like it must have cost a bomb. But um, try, do your best uh, sort of descriptive skills and,
2: and tell us about the labels um so I think it's quite a classic label in its typography I mean I'm using a sort of Helvetica style font um, a, a font which I love I love uh, I, I love all the railway signs you see in Europe that use, use that font I love the train spotting sort of aesthetic as well from that from that uh, film of the 90s um, so the gutter and stars sort of word mark is 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 uh, sort of Helvetica bold um, and that's put to one side of the label, and right bang in the middle of the labels is a, is all, in all three. I think you've probably only seen one of them, David, but the other two uh, similar, um, bright, um, sort of poppy um, artwork, um, punchy artwork. So on the first, on the Bacchus label, it's it's a sort of yellowy orange background with with a with a young couple sort of holding hands and dancing in in uh, in in the in the foreground. It, one of them's pink and one of them's purple and it's, you know, it's, it's a really sort of bright image and it's, it's a collage image made from old newspaper cuttings and headlines and things all sort of uh, glued together. So I just think it's, it, it looks different. I, 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 I see, um, again, another sort of music parallel i see the wine bottle and the label much like you know a a musician might see the artwork on their on their single or their album i think it's it's something to be enjoyed as much um and and to be looked at alongside the wine so what, why not yeah. you know do something slightly different
1: well it's got great shelf appeal I think uh, just from the, the the one label that I've seen it's also that uh, that newsprint uh, makes made me think of a, a nod to your your past work as well so uh, no they, they look re- really classy of course what really matters is what's in the bottle but but shelf appeal is is just so important um you have um, written for the buyer. Uh, publication for which I also write um, about uh, uh, your your journey if you like to having an urban winery if if anyone's not read it I'd highly recommend it they're they're really good pieces and you've uh, come up with some uh, very interesting um, I would say Heath Robinson I had to look up Heath Robinson just to make sure it wasn't hugely (laughs) insulting but it's not actually insulting Uh, these innovations to get things into out of your windmill do you want to Take us through some of your sort of heroic endeavours on that front.
2: Well, I suppose, <laughs> firstly, just a little bit about the, the mill itself. It's an old, um, it's an old windmill that was built in eighteen forty-seven to make uh, to mill flour for for Cambridge, actually. Um, the, the French family set it up and they stopped milling in the 1950s. So it was, it was going for a good hundred years. And then between then and and now it's kind of been used for various things, office space, storage, that sort of thing. But over the last sort of 10 years, the windmill itself, and certainly the basement of the mill where the winery is, has been disused. So when I got the opportunity to, to look at this space, to, to start a winery there, I, th- I thought it was great. It had an industrial past. It was a cellar, so it was kind of coolish ambient temperature. And it, it was in a really interesting and sort of fascinating building and part of town. Um, so those are the pluses. The negatives, I suppose, are the uh, the practicalities of it. Because it's sort of semi underground, you have to go downstairs to get into it. The doorway's narrow, 75 centimetres at its maximum. Um, and it's a grade two listed building, so I can't sort of knock things around too much or um, remove door frames to get things in. So I'm very limited as to what I can, what kind of equipment I can get in. Thankfully, a burgundy barrel fits through the door. Thankfully, some stainless steel tanks fit through the door or a pallet truck, which most wineries would have for moving heavy things around. Um, So I've had to sort of uh, improvise somewhat. So in order to get the grapes into the winery, the red grapes, the pinot grapes for... um, uh, for fermentation, they arrived in big half-ton um, uh, plastic bins in the back of a rental van. So they were sort of shoveled into smaller bins and then down a scaffold pole, down a scaffold plank into the winery. Uh, we didn't have a destemming machine, so we destemmed using a piece of um, uh, plastic-coated metal, a metal sort of mesh over two barrels. We um, rubbed the grapes through there. It was surprisingly effective. Um, and yeah, there's been sort of various other things I've made it to sort of help me along the way, which uh, t- to save money as much as anything. Um, so a punch down tool to use for red wine making, for example, I was quoted 170 pounds for a stainless steel tool, I managed to build one with a bit of oak shelving and, and a broom handle for, I don't know, 50p or something. Um, so <laughs> a lot of it's born out of um, financial control at this stage. And a lot of it's born out of um, just the, the, the impracticalities of the winery.
1: Uh, you must be looking pretty buff these days with all that sort of heaving yeah. stuff around as well, I, I would, I would, um, I would uh, guess. Um, when will we see these wines? You mentioned you've got the Bacchus coming on stream very shortly. What about uh, the others?
2: Yeah, so the Bacchus is going to be launched or released, as you would, with a record on a Monday. Historically, I know records are released on Fridays these days, but mine's coming out on the 3rd of May. People will be able to to buy that from the website gutterandstars.co.uk and also at the cellar door. in terms of the Pinot, I'm sort of looking July, August time. I tasted it yesterday morning, and it was it was tasting really fantastic, uh, really sort of punchy and bright, much more like a sort of Beaujolais cru uh, uh, than than a sort of classic Burgundian red. I would say at this stage, mm, I think it's a nice. sort of bright, yeah, bright sort of summery, fresh red, rather than something that's perhaps gonna gonna need another year in barrel. So, July, August for that, and the Chardonnay, autumn. I think I might hold one barrel back for another year and, um, and, and see how that develops, because the fruit was just incredible with the Chardonnay. Came in at 100 Ursula, which was 13.5, 14 percent potential alcohol. It's leveled, it's leveled out at around 13 um, uh, percent after fermentation, which I think is incredible for an English still wine. Um, no capitalization at all. It's just really bright, ripe fruit. So, yeah, that, I'm really excited about that, but I think we need to wait a little bit longer.
1: And uh, I also read you've got a grape skin beer project uh, as a sideline as well.
2: Well, yeah, so what do you do when you've got um, 500 kilograms of spent, um, well, there weren't 500 kilograms after the, after the juice had come out, but, you know, maybe 100 kilograms of spent grape skins, Pinot Noir skins, well, you give them to the local craft brewer, of course. Um, I know a guy in uh, Water Beach, which is just outside Cambridge, who makes incredible sort of sour beers. Um, and he's made two beers from the Pinot Noir skins, um, one of which has already been released and sold, sold out actually. And it was, it was made with the Pinot Noir skins and also with raspberries and cherries. So it was a real sort of combination fruit uh, beer and he's also making a Saison just from the Pinot Skins um, uh, which I think is coming out uh, in May as well so something else to look forward to well I've looked up the
1: website gutterandstars.co.uk Cambridge's first urban winery uh, I can't wait to hop on there and uh, uh, order a wine when they're released it's really exciting and uh, thank you so much uh, for coming onto the drinking hour and talking us through the gutter and stars project Chris
2: Absolutely, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
3: The
0: Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirits Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.
1: Let's get the first of our medal-winning wine recommendations from the IWSC. Greyfriars Cuvée Royale Brute 2015 was awarded a silver medal with 93 points The judges praising its elegant nose of biscuity brioche, citrus and sweet spice. It's focused with yellow plum, lemon and lime acidity supported by toast. A fine, delicate mousse with a juicy finish. Another one of our English sparkling stars winning acclaim. It's a limited release. It's £32 at greyfriarsvineyard.co.uk. We should all be trying to support the south african wine industry right now so here's a gold medal reason to do so stellen rust 55 barrel fermented Chenin blanc 2019 the judges said rich concentrated and exotic on both nose and palate baked apple and custard well integrated oak and smoky notes combine beautifully lovely textural mouthfeel and a delicious long complex finish and that's available at allaboutwine.co.uk for £14.89, which is amazing value for a gold medal winner and really underlines that incredible value that there is to be had in South Africa. And a Cabernet Franc El Enemigo 2017 with a silver medal and 90 points. I was on the judging panel for this one and we described it this way. A sumptuous core of plump red fruit with a floaty violet nose and seductive satiny palate. Ripe tannins, crunchy body and layered tarry finish with a good grip. And that's available online at vinissimus.co.uk, and that's £23.15.
0: The Drinking Hour on Food FM.
1: Now it's time to transport you to our desert island. Each episode of The Drinking Hour, we invite a leading drinks professional to share with us their passion for a particular drink or a place associated with it. It's our desert island drink. It can be a grape variety, a particular wine, a spirit. It can even be a whole region, which is probably a good idea in terms of breadth of supply. Uh, That's uh, what we're gonna do now with a grape variety. And it is Riesling. And our guest is joining us from Germany. It's Paula Sidor. Uh, Hello, Paula. Welcome to The Drinking Hour.
3: Hi, David. Thanks for for having me on.
1: A pleasure. You've chosen, uh, some would say, the most noble variety of them all. Uh, But it's often misunderstood Riesling, isn't it?
3: It is. It is. It's been one of the challenges as an American uh, working in Germany is trying to not only understand Riesling, but also to explain it, because there are so many misconceptions about it. It's one of the noble white grape varieties, and it's also one of the oldest in Germany. Uh, But there are so many different variants like uh, like Chenin Blanc, for example, that um, that make it hard to really pin down. It's hard to say what exactly it is.
1: So, what does it represent to you, then, uh, Riesling?
3: To me, um, Riesling represents place, perhaps more than really any other variety that I can think of. It it not only mirrors place, but it transports you to a place. And um, maybe it's because I'm I'm an expat, but I spend truly an inordinate amount of time thinking about place, how it's represented, how it shapes me, how I shape it, past, future, all of that. And um, for me, both people and grapes need to be from a place. And as amazing as Riesling is, her real USP for me is that she's happy to play second fiddle to place.
1: It's really interesting, Uh, a bit like Pinot Noir, it's often said of of that grape variety too. It's able uh, to somehow communicate uh, terroir in a a, a really uh, very uh, clever way. Um, You're an expert in uh, the wines around you there in Germany. Um, Tell us what it's communicating from that terroir.
3: Well, that terroir is pretty tough to limit. Um, Germany has on the one hand, it's small; it's only about a hundred thousand hectares total, which is the complete size of Bordeaux. Um, but we have an entire range of, of microclimates, of regions, of soils um, that can be that can be worked through, and that's part of what I think helps Riesling communicate the different terroirs in which it grows. Is the aromatics, for starters. Um, and the very long hang times that are possible in a cool climate region like Germany. Um, Pinot Noir, as you mentioned, is, an, is another one of those where varieties where the, where the great place second fiddle to place. And not surprisingly, Pinot Noir is, I believe, grown the third in the world's plantings. Pinot Noir, a uh, German Pinot Noir has is the third reigning after France and the US
1: and um, Riesling, as I said at the beginning is so often misunderstood and the number of people I meet who are expecting it to be sweet uh, why do you think it is that um, it has become so synonymous in certainly uh, in the english-speaking world anyway uh, with being a, a sweet grape variety
3: well, there's a there's a couple different Ways that one could answer that. Uh, first, it's it's a really aromatic variety, and I think a lot of people confuse fruitiness in the nose with sweetness on the palate. Um, so that's that's one way. And the other um, misconception, or not so much misconception, but problem, is a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Sweet Rieslings tend to do really well in the rankings because it's a very dominant flavor. When you have wines that are rated highly, those are the ones that importers tend to grab, and then on the shelves, those are the wines that are then stocked. And then people look at that and say, "Well, okay, so this is this is the representative." range of what is available in Germany. It, it was one of the real eye-openers for me when I, when I moved over here 18 years ago, that everybody talks about sweet Rieslings in the, in the English-speaking market, but over here, most of what is consumed is dry. Most of what's available on the shelves is dry. Uh, so I, I just think that those are not necessarily the wines that make it as much outside of the borders, although that is starting to change.
0: Yeah, it really
1: is. And, and rightly so. And I think you're right about that self-fulfilling prophecy. That said, some of these sweet examples, we, I, I certainly don't want to knock them because they are absolutely magnificent wines, aren't they? It's just I think sometimes a, a case of of what you you pair with them, how you enjoy them. What, what do you tend to uh, pair uh to appreciate those uh, magnificent sweet wines
3: to pair with the sweet wines well first i put them in the cellar for a really long time <laughs> uh, before i even start thinking about food um, i think that's one of the tricks with the sweet wines with understanding the sweet wines uh, is let them sit They're, they were never intended um historically to be consumed young Give them ten years. Give them fifteen years. Give them thirty years, uh, because at that point, then those primary fruits, that that obvious sweetness, settles down. Um, it, it's not it's not as dominant. And so, when you're tasting a twenty year old Auslese, it tastes. It's balanced. That's and that's the the real USP for me of German wine is is balance. Um, in terms of food, with a with a sweet wine especially in the aged one. You can really pair it with everything. Um, you can you can use it as an aperitif because the acidity levels, which are exceptionally high, even if you don't taste it because the sweetness is dominant, is going to create that mouth-watering effect that you're looking for with an aperitif. Um, you can certainly do it at the end of a meal, and you can do it with the main course. Uh, it's really a question of figuring out what there is in the wine, what aromatics you want to play with. I've paired it with everything from pheasant. Um, if you want to go for something with a little bit of gaminess to counteract the sweetness, uh, you can you really, the world is your oyster. Pheasant's and, a very, see,
1: very good idea, actually. I, yeah. I love um, I love those blue cheeses with uh, the these uh, um, sort of off dry and then sweeter German wines as well.
3: Exactly. Any range of cheeses. I personally love some with a bit of mineral content in them. Uh, a nice uh, a nice parmesan can go really well as well you want something with that saltiness with those with those crystals in it to um, the sort of link up in a genetic sense with the with the acidity in the, in the wines
1: For those who are terrified by German wine labels and um, they can be pretty terrifying what's the best way of understanding them?
3: Oh that's a good question um, what is it they say? Uh, Tell someone you love them today because life is short, but shout it at them in German because life is also terrifying. (laughs) And I I would say that German labels are, like you said, a lot like that, a real double-edged sword. Uh, On the one hand, there is more information available on a German wine label than in pretty much any other country. And on the other hand, it's in German. so the best way to understand it is to understand the basis of the of the German wine law, that scary thing that everybody everybody comes back to. And that German wines are based on this predicate or or attribute system, which reflects the ripeness of a grape at harvest. Um, that ripeness can be turned is, is sugar. Um, But whether it turns into sweetness on the palate or whether it's fermented through to dry, doesn't really matter in terms of the labeling. If you see the word trocken, that's dry. But it can also be paired with the attributes. So you could have an ausleser trocken. And that's where people start to get really confused. Uh, The best way to understand it is to figure out thing that you like, if you have an example, whether you stumble on it or whether you find it. Look at that label and then start to read more about what that style is. Then talk to your merchant or your sommelier. But honestly, I, I think it's also so much, you know, when you go running, there's a, there, there's sort of that mental block that you just have to get past a certain point. And for some reason, a lot of people have that same mental block with, with Germany. They see the German, they see the Gothic print and they, they panic, but people don't panic when they see a Burgundian label. Right, and that's in French, and not everybody speaks uh-huh. French, and the labeling and is is just as complex. So I think people just need to sort of open their minds, figure out a couple of key terms that you look for on the label, Trocken being one if you're looking for a dry wine, and producers and the uh, like in More and more, there is the origin, uh, the the vineyard that is being put on the label, and if you see that. You can start to to work your way in.
1: There's been a fashion towards lower alcohol, lighter wines around the world. Um, that trend rather suits Germany, doesn't it?
3: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, it's it's what Germany has always done, and it's uh, fantastic that that's what people are asking for in Riesling as well as in as well as in red wines. Um, for me, my my absolute favorite style is a uh, is a cabinet. Um, both dry and with some residual. Um, it's, for me, it's like biting into an early apple on the top of a high alpine meadow. It's a mouthful of, of mountain air. What I love about about Riesling, uh, in particular in cool climates, is this nimbleness, this agility that it manages uh, to have so that it's not a mouthful of wine in that sense. And there really is, for me at least, no other country that manages to get that depth and intensity without the width it's something that Germany does really well
1: yeah you put it really well you talked about the ageability earlier as well with those sweet wines but Riesling is just uh, fantastic with age uh, across the board I mean obviously you need a good quality wine to start off with but it, it has this amazing ability to age doesn't it
3: it really does. Um, that was something also that was a bit new when I came over that I, I hadn't realized growing up as a, as a heathen American. It was, you know, white wines were a year, maybe two, maybe three. Um, thankfully, even that is, has changed in the States, but certainly in my youth, that was what it was all about. And so tasting a 10-year-old, a 20-year-old, a 50-year-old Riesling and finding that what the acidity can do uh, for the grape, for the wine, is amazing. The, that balance, when a wine is made well-balanced, it it holds. There's no other way to put it.
1: Do you have a favorite re- uh, region for Riesling?
3: Ooh. That's tough to say. Um, I have lots that I love. I guess I have Naha. Um, it's kind of what I call the, the Wild West of Germany. It's uh, from a location because not that many people tend to to know it. It's nestled over on the western edge of the country, basically smack dab between the Mosel and the Pfalz, with Rheinhessen just to the east. It's um, one of Germany's youngest wine-growing regions officially, um, since I think 1971 or so. Um, although wine has been Grown there and cultivated there for for many centuries under the name of uh, Rhine wine, and it's one of the smaller regions in terms of size at about four thousand hectares, give or take. Uh, but for me, it's it's the region that best represents the sense of a sense of place. Um, in that, in those four thousand hectares, there's only there's over one hundred and eighty different kinds of soil types, uh, which is just phenomenal. And Riesling there is grown only in the best sites. They, the, there are many different varieties that are grown in the region, but Riesling is really reserved for the Grand Cru or, or Erste Lager um, sites there. And what I love so much about them is that they capture that agility and playfulness of the Mosul to the north. They capture the, the this deep-rooted, often volcanic minerality and length and power of Rheinhessen and the aromatics of the of the and um, it's all tied up with this sort of enduring thread of spiciness that is uh, that really is entirely its own.
1: Mm, sounds fantastic! Showing off time, then uh, you're permitted to show off um, by me. <laughs> uh, what's the best Riesling you've ever enjoyed?
3: Ooh, there have been so many, and I'm. Oh, my tasting notebooks, I moved in the summer, so my tasting notebooks are all still packed in a box. So I'm going to have to pick the one that that sort of stays in my memory. And I would say that it was a 1923 Schloss Buckelheimer Kupfergrüber from Gut Hermensberg in the Nara. It was part of a vertical tasting of the site that started in 2016 and when all the way back to 1914. Uh, so it was amazing to see the development of a culture, of a people, of of a site, of a place, and what connected it through a hundred years. Um, the wine in the glass, of course, it started to fade within minutes of it being poured, but you knew you were tasting a piece of history. It was quite literally time in a bottle, um, at a, wow. at a at a sensory level it was it was still remarkably fresh and aromatic i couldn't believe it i kept waiting for it to sort of fall apart and it didn't it stayed together Uh, honestly i i I hope i can look that good at 98.
0: It's
1: incredible that yes, the, the wines you're tasting, you're going back through two world wars in that uh, in that process of of one vertical tasting. Absolutely astonishing. One of the great uh, privileges of of being in the, in the wine world. And you've just launched something new into uh, the world of of wine knowledge and and wine criticism. Uh, Trink, uh, tell us about uh, what that is and how we can enjoy it.
3: Ah, thank you. Um drink yes that is uh i guess everybody has to, has to do something in the pandemic and, and this was what i and my co-founder um valerie Katawala, decided to do it was actually long in the works um, and then the pandemic happened and we sort of looked at each other and said do we continue why not um what it is it is an english language um magazine on germanic speaking wines because we both valerie and i are both american but we have both spent a lot of time living in in germany and we've we found a commonality in that we've so much of what the exciting things that are happening in the german-speaking wine world um and by that i mean germany austria Alto Adige, and German-speaking Switzerland. So much of that is locked behind this language paywall, the same way we were talking earlier, David, about how the dry wines tend to stay here because people outside don't know them, so they don't buy them. It's There's so many exciting things happening over here that is being written about in German, but isn't sort of making it outside. And so we launched this magazine aimed at getting both German writers, as well as other people writing about Germany, experts, boots on the ground, we like to call it, talking about the exciting things that are happening here. Because honestly, there's an incredible heart in German winemaking that too often is lost on this constant focus on rules and nomenclature and and numbers and Uxlegrad and and all of that. And um, what separates, at least for me, Germany from the rest of the world is that it's got 100,000 hectares of vineyards and winemakers who view themselves first and foremost as farmers. And maybe it's because I grew up in the countryside in New Hampshire, but there is a humility before nature um, and each other that really sets Germany apart for me. And if you expand that um, and look at the fact that the grapes really don't respect borders, um Or at least not political ones they respect geographical ones and so when i take the ideas that i have about german wine and expand it to looking at these intersecting areas these border countries um the rieslings for example from that are that that are grown on the edge of the Nara have a lot in common with those in Rheinhessen, hessen right over the border and that same thing expands to the rieslings that are grown in uh in the falz right at the border of us that there's a commonality there in, in language, in people, in geography, in style. And it's like pulling on, on this, this thread and finding this thread and, and learning where these intersections are and what connects us, what binds us. And that was sort of the heart of what we decided um, that we wanted to explore in this magazine. So you can find it online, www.trinkmag.com. We look forward to seeing you there.
1: Yeah no it's uh, you, you've sold it well and i have to say it's a a, a, a real gold mine actually there's some fantastic content on uh, swiss wines uh, and i adore swiss wines but it's it's reasonably difficult to find uh, that that content that information so uh, no, it's, it's a really good place to go i would highly recommend uh, taking a look at uh, trink and uh, becoming a a supporter too um, Uh, Paula, thank you so much. It's been fascinating. You've made a great case for Riesling.
0: Uh, It's lovely to talk to you.
3: It's lovely to talk to you too. Thanks so much for having me.
0: The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirits Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.
1: Okay, it's time for our next trio of recommendations of medal winners. If you were inspired by Sarah Abbott, M.W., uh, last edition, waxing lyrical about Georgian wine, then here's one to track down. Satrapezo Saparavi, 2017, won a silver medal. The judges said this, juicy, bursting with ripe black fruit and underlined by elegant smokiness. Vibrant palates with a black fruit profile supported by bright acidity and structural tannins. A complex finish of blue fruits, and Minerality, and that is £25 at georgianwinesociety.co.uk. As we said last week, it's well worth tracking down these wines from George. It takes a bit of effort, but uh, they are out there. Next, to an English rose. Well, a rosé. Gusbourne Cherry Garden Vineyard 2019 won a silver medal, with the judges praising its sumptuous tart cherry, which shines throughout from the bold, fresh nose to the short, chalky finish, dappled with juicy raspberry and strawberry notes and hints of rosehip. It's £29.50 at gusborne.com. And it does sound like the stuff of a summer English country garden, doesn't it? In a tasting note, at least. And the Balvenie 30 Single Malt Scotch Whiskey from William Grant & Sons won a Gold Outstanding Award with 98 points. The judges remarked old wood and furniture polish on the nose with an explosion of tropical fruits, vanilla and marzipan on the palate. Wonderfully balanced. From Speyside, this whiskey picks up so many accolades. It's made by the acclaimed David Stewart, MBE. It's a wonderful marriage of flavor, texture, and perfectly balanced sipping. It's a slightly eye-watering 900 pounds, but I'm told it's apparently worth every penny.
0: The Drinking Hour on Food FM.
1: When it comes to vodka, there's a bewildering array of base ingredients that could be its starting point wheat, barley, rye, corn, or of course the humble spud. I say humble, but potato vodkas are often the choice of experts, and most especially mixologists who believe they offer a little more character. Potato grower Richard Arundel certainly thinks so. He has diversified, a bit of a theme in this edition of The Drinking Hour, turning his passion for a particular potato into a classy mash. The spud in question is the King Edward, very much my go-to for the uh, fluffiest of roast potatoes, and the vodka is Edward's 1902. And Richard Arundel joins us now from Yorkshire. Uh, Richard, hello, welcome to The Drinking Hour. Hi David. Good morning, Richard. When we think of vodka, we we tend to think of of neutral flavours, purity, texture, etc. Um, tell us how uh, potato makes a vodka that's different to one, say, from wheat or rye, for
4: example. Yeah, I think I think that one of the main things. So making a v- vodka from potato, as you as as, as you mentioned earlier, it's generally recognised that potato. Potatoes create a higher quality potato vodka. I think the key thing um, that that we've certainly found with 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 making a, a single variety potato vodka from King Edward potatoes is that the traits that the King Edward potato has gives a gives a, a much smoother, much <clears throat> much more enjoyable drinking experience with 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 the, the vodka. Certain certain vodkas you'll know can can make you wince a little bit when you drink them, the sharpness, whereas. Mm. The, you know the palate that, that that comes from a from a potato vodka is much smoother, much more uh, you know, much more sippable, much more drinkable on its own if if, if you like uh, uh, over ice. I mentioned mixologists because uh, it, that's right, isn't it? They,
1: they uh, tend often to prefer potato vodkas for that kind of textural depth that it brings to a cocktail, don't they?
4: Yeah, there's <clears throat> there's sort of a a vodka conception or misconception if you like that vodkas have to be odourless and tasteless um i I think from a from a from a mixology perspective what 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 they like and uh, about a potato vodka is the fact that there is a flavor there that does come through from the from from the vodka with the alcohol um so so yeah i think that's that's why Real sort of mixology connoisseurs, if you like, tend to tend to lean towards a potato vodka for those for those quality traits. And uh, I have a, a a
1: short kind of shot of it uh, next to me here. Um, it is uh, quite early in the day for uh, knocking it back. I think uh, I'm still on the coffee, but uh, <laughs> but we can, of course, uh, we can we can use our, our, our sensory skills here to to taste uh, by by certainly from the. Uh, um from the, the nose so tell me when you're assessing a vodka um because I, I, I do judging for the iwsc I, I i tend to do wine i have done cognac but i've never done um uh, spirit judging so tell me what you're uh, looking for when you assess uh, a good
4: vodka i think when you first smell it you can almost smell the taste of the smoothness if you like if you if you if you if you smell what you've just poured into your glass now you should be getting a a, a sort of a, it's been described as a vanilla aroma yes. even sort of sort of maybe coconutty some people say ripe banana um another thing that came back from i think it was from iwsc they said apricot yogurt and white flowers there's a whole whole mix of subtle aromas in there that if you inhale it deep, you you should find mm. uh, you should find all or some of them.
1: Yeah, there's a combination there. There is a slightly um, sweet note um, around yeah. um, around kind of apple or pear, probably the latter actually. And then there's um, there's something um, in terms of the uh, that high but dry sweet note that reminds me of a, of a you know a custard cream biscuit. Actually, it's got that kind of very very gentle dr- sort of dry sweetness if that makes sense on, on the nose as well but you can also tell there's a um uh, just from smelling it there's a kind of mineral note there as well which kind of suggests purity it's odd isn't it that you could smell purity but that's for me it's the mineral um element that does that
4: yeah um, 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 and we think um so King Edward potatoes, which were uh, created in 1902 in in, in in our part of the world um, in, in in North Lincolnshire, um, they're, they're well renowned for, from an eating quality perspective because because they're grown on limestone and chalk soils. So so the limestone and, and chalk soils of the of the of the North Lincolnshire and Yorkshire Wolds is probably the place in the country to grow and, and I'm not sure if that mineral note that you get there comes from the fact that you know we are. We, we're, we're we're growing on high calcium soils um and and uh, and that's something that comes through but king edwards have that unique taste of, of their own you know you mentioned it earlier about about how it's a bit your go-to as a as a high quality roast potato for oh, yeah. for that buttery creamy creamy finish and, and i think that's one of the things that that i feel the variety has, has, has brought to this this vodka so when we And we did all our work all across Eastern Europe in the UK. um, Look at looking at looking at different potato vodkas. People vodkas have been made in the in the UK and in in Scotland particularly. There's there's one or two two uh, good good examples. They they're using a blend of potatoes because dry matter in potatoes is different, and and you get better yield out of a higher dry matter sort of a crisping type potato or frying potato. But you probably don't get the taste. But one thing that we noted was a lot of people were putting a a bit of King Edward in 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 their blend, and I kind of had an inclination that they were using that King Edward because they wanted the taste, the taste characteristics from the King Edward, and you know, felt very passionate about the fact that you know where I come from, um, Humberside as it was where I was born. That's where the King Edward was 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 invented, and and really gave me the 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 idea, if you like, to 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 say right well. Think single malt whiskey, think single variety potato, think the best tasting potato. Let's make a vodka from it. And, you know, the results have been amazing. Uh, You know, two star great taste award. Good, good feedback from our our first attempt with IWSC. Um, Spirit Industry Awards got a gold medal and uh, a master's for its smoothness and and its taste. So, you know, the the, the awards have have kind of kind of uh, told us that we're on the right track with it. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, it's
1: not bad going for something that you only launched, I think, um, just over a year ago. And in that time, of course, we've had the pandemic. So it's not been the easiest of times to, to launch uh, anything. I mentioned that uh, fluffiness in a uh, King Edward. Um, I didn't realise that the King Edward potato was so relatively new. I mean, we're only talking about just over a 100 years, aren't we?
4: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess you know relatively new in in in, in that sense of a hundred years, but one of our oldest in terms of if you think what's followed on from the King Edwards. so there's you know there's probably two really known varieties by the by by the consumer that have endured, stood the test of time, King Edwards and Marys Piper, and mm. ironically, they both we class them in potato growing circles. we class them as old varieties because there's lots of new new newer varieties being bred. You know, over over the last hundred years, that that outperform oh, really? King Edward's and Marius Piper from a an agricultural perspective, from a yield perspective, from an output perspective. Um, but they don't taste they don't taste like the 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 the, uh, the the King Edward. And I think that's why that's why it's endured. That's why at Christmas it's the premium variety on the supermarket shelf for, for mm-hmm. the roast potatoes for Christmas lunch. You go on M&S, you go in Waitrose. You know that that that's uh, that that is what they set out as the as the premium so so yeah um relatively relatively young in the sense of when the potato first came across from from Peru but uh, but relatively old in terms of potato production
1: yeah okay that's all relative i suppose isn't it um yeah. what would be the difference then let's say between um a king edward in a vodka and a maris piper in a vodka
4: so we've done a lot of work as you can imagine benchmarking you know how how the how how the vodka tastes and 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 each variety does give a a a a different flavor characteristic potatoes are all about dry matter as is as 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 is wheat and when we mentioned at the beginning the difference between potato and and a wheat vodka what you're essentially doing when you make a vodka is you you're tapping into the starch that's in in either the potato or the or, or or the wheat converting that starch into sugar fermenting to, to, make your, to make your alcohol, and if you think about a potato as as essentially an on average 20% dry matter, 80% water, you think about wheat as 80% dry matter, 20% moisture, roughly, mm. broadly speaking. So the reason that the wheat is probably more efficient in terms of well, it's definitely more efficient in terms of alcohol yield to make alcohol from from wheat. Potatoes, it's an expensive uh, and a craft way to, to, to make vodka because you know, you're dealing with a lot a lot lower dry matter. But back to that dry matter thing, that's the important thing then in the potato. <clears throat> so certain potatoes can be as low a dry matter as sixteen, as higher dry matter, a crisping potato as 24, 25. And and I, I think when you eat eat potatoes from a fresh perspective, there's a big difference between how a, a low dry matter potato at sixteen percent and a high dry matter potato at twenty-four percent tastes. King Edward sits in the middle of that with, with sort of an average dry matter of somewhere between 20 and 21, whereas Maris Piper tends to tends to lean towards 22, 23% dry matter, which all all very technical, but 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 um, mm. but but, the, but that's that's why they they are they are good for the for the for their use, if you like. King Edward's you know tastes and eats very well because it's in that middle ground of dry yeah. matter. Piper has really lent itself to more of a frying variety for making chips chips from mm-hmm. um that's that's where it made its name because of the higher dry matter it means it soaks up less oil when you when you fry it so so <clears throat> yeah without getting too too lost in the science in the science of, of dry matter i think i think that's why every every um every, every variety gives Gives its own different trait because of its its, its dry matter and its internal characteristics and, and its makeup. All the things that I believed in a, in a King Edward from a from an eating quality perspective have come through in this vodka in terms of its you know fantastic creamy smooth smooth taste.
1: Yeah, well, it's it's really interesting. You talk about uh, worrying about getting too technical and and uh, and, and the various uh, the, the water contents, starch content, etc. But actually, it's really it's fascinating if you're a keen cook um, to to look up potatoes. Because I quite routinely will let's say I'm making I made a dauphinoise the other day. I actually uh, before I bought my potatoes, I, I looked up what is the best potato. Do I want a waxy one? Do I want a um, you know a, a, a fluffy one? Um, I think it's really really important to the end result when you're cooking. So therefore, it follows that it's going to be the same uh, when you make a, a, a vodka. Really, doesn't it? I mean, exactly. Up- yeah. Exactly. So. So don't worry about getting too technical, really. It's, it's fascinating. <laughs> um, but uh, talking of technical, you've gone from, um, in very basic terms, being a potato farmer. I know it's uh, you do a bit more than that, but uh, uh, to being a distiller. How on earth do you go about doing that?
4: Yeah, well, uh, I mean, I have to hold my hands up here with a, with a, with a fantastic team of people, to tell you the truth. Um, this whole project came about. So, so we started thinking about this 10 years ago myself and... Um, uh, uh, a guy who I've worked with for a long time. who's actually my production director on the potato side of things, and he, him and his wife are real passion, a sort of hobby for travelling around distilleries in Scotland and things like that. So, so they were really into it. We talked about making a potato vodka, and then then um, by chance we, uh, we, well not by chance, but we got a customer um, in, in in North Lincolnshire who actually um, makes a makes a cooked. Uh, jacket potato um, that, that they sell into food service, and and two of the members of that family. So one of them, Matthew, uh, is a microbiologist. He's a scientist. Uh, father's a scientist, and, and 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 sister Emma. She she worked in the uh, in the events business in London. She was she was sort of in 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 the the on trade sector, if you like. And so it was a it was a coming together of. of uh, of the right kind of people with the right kind of skill set so you know our end was very much potatoes potato production we've, we've got a we've got a potato pack house we're used to washing handling we used to to the to the the semi-manufacturing side side of potatoes you know serving serving the likes of mcdonald's with with with, with, with potatoes the fries and things like that so we understood that side of it matthew very much our head distiller he brought the science uh from his sort of microbiological background to, to the equation emma brings very much the a lot of the work on brand a lot of the understanding of of of, of the industry uh of the, of the drinks industry um and and so it was a you know what we we're able to do is we'll put together a really good team of the, of the right skill sets and 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 you know that come through in the in in the in, in the quality of the product we've created i think
1: yeah it certainly has and did you have to spend a lot of money on on kit to do this as well
4: yeah yeah i mean that's a that's another uh, another huge benefit i had i got a, i got a friend who's from the insurance sector funnily enough and uh he uh, he sold out of his business a couple of years ago and he, he he he'd been pestering me um for a long time about making making a potato vodka and so i said right joe um Uh, time has now come you're approaching retirement Uh, let's go for it and he he, he's effectively been our angel investor so the investment that went into our distillery was a probably in the region of just over half a million initially so it's quite a quite quite a significant investment but uh, but you know it was good to be able to do it from uh, from uh, from an internal source you know from a risk perspective i didn't have to go to a bank or anything and uh, and um, you know that was that was a that was a great help
1: I mean, you're dealing with a what I would consider a premium potato with King Edwards, and uh, you've got a, a premium product here with the vodka. As you you mentioned, it's already done pretty well for its first year in existence with a an IWSC silver, and they're very exacting judges. And you've got a great taste award as well. What are your hopes for Edwards 1902?
4: I think we, you know, as you mentioned that. Launching, uh, launching at the start of lockdown wasn't, wasn't perhaps the best timing uh, when, when, uh, when the whole of the, uh, uh, the, the, the entree, restaurant trade, um, hospitality sector has closed down. So, it's been a, been a, a relatively challenging launch year. But, but all I can say is, is that anybody we've put this vodka in front of um, has absolutely loved it, uh, and, and uh, that gives you a lot of confidence. The awards that, that mm-hmm. we've got. Give a lot of confidence it's actually gone um into the world vodka awards um which i think the results come out in june of this year which so we're hoping for we're hoping for a real good accolade from from, from san francisco um, if that happens i would say you know we've about we've about done all the awards that you need to do to to uh, to to confirm you know our belief of how good the product is and then really it's about you know it's about developing the sales for the brand um, it's it's got to be it's got to be a premium sell because as i mentioned uh, earlier in our conversation it's expensive to make vodka from um from potatoes so um you know to, the, the cost price of it is 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 significant that becomes an economy of scale obviously as you make more your, your cost of production comes down but it is relatively expensive so you know we, we've got a lot of work to do now in terms of developing the brand developing uh, where it where it's sold um we're we're in dialogue with it with a premium retailer um and hopefully that will go well um you know it's available through a lot of the premium um speciality distributors if you like for the on trade in the uk and um, and we sell we sell from our own website and we've got a great a great uh, a great range of uh, of cocktails and drink mixes on the website that we've that we've developed uh, over over the past twelve right. months that really
1: well if you've aroused curiosity uh, from someone who who wants to try it then how much is it uh, on your own website what's the website called
4: uh, it's edwards1902.co.uk um, it retails on there at just under forty pounds I think it's thirty eight ninety nine we should get there and take a look have you got a
1: favourite serve by the way how do you like your vodka straight up are you uh, on the rocks man what's your favourite uh...
4: Style. I often get asked that asked that question, and and my answer is a little bit long winded because it depends on the time of day, really. Um, you know, I, I like nothing more, uh, say, having brunch on a weekend than a, than to, to have a bloody mary. I think that's fantastic. Oh yes. My, my my sort of easy go to is a vodka lime and soda. Uh, I I love a Moscow Mule, which would be 50 mil of Edwards um, ginger beer. Um, king's ginger syrup and a and, and fresh lime uh, that's great um, but i think my favorite right now we de- we've we've developed with a mixologist you were talking about mixologists uh, earlier uh, in, in, mm-hmm. in 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 the piece and uh, we've developed a range of serves for the vodka that went down a road of saying this vodka's got great taste and it's got those taste characteristics that we spoke about we need a range of drinks for this that let the vodka's taste come through So um, we've developed a a range of spring summer spritzes, which um, uh, uh, there are three or four. They're they're actually all all of the recipes are on the website. But my favourite is 50 ml of the vodka, 25 ml of cloudy apple juice, just topped off with with soda water, uh, a slice of pear as the garnish that is an unbelievably fantastic because you haven't overpowered the vodka with lots of other flavors you really get the flavor of the vodka through the drink as well it's it's a great drink sounds fantastic and I can understand why the pear would really work well with uh, that that vodka
1: Um, I've uh, tried it I think it's delicious it's got a beautiful um, purity to it lovely texture uh, and and some and some real kind of character there as well which as you rightly said people don't always associate uh with vodka so good luck with it uh i think you'll do very well and thanks for coming on the uh, drinking hour richard yep thank you very
4: much indeed thanks for your time
0: the drinking hour on food fm you're listening to the drinking hour with david kermode in association with the international wine and spirits competition using the best in the world to judge the best in the world
1: our final selection of medal winners and we start with an intriguing gin of the kind that Paddington might approve. Spirit of Harrogate's Slingsby Marmalade gin is an intriguing fusion of botanicals and Yorkshire marmalade. It won a gold outstanding, the judges said, think thick-cut marmalade with this beautifully balanced and elegant gin. A plump, jammy nose is met with fresh and concentrated flavours, a marvellous flavour journey. That's at Master of Malt for £35, and I've made a note I have to try that one. Demonstrating that it's not just pricey wines that do well, Waitrose & Partners Blueprint Pinot Noir 2019 won a silver medal and 90 points, with the judges saying it had an attractively light nose, displaying cherry and cranberry, aromatic freshness, with mature plums sweet spice and hints of bell pepper weighty and textured with supple tannins and a slightly dry finish and that is just £5.99 we were talking with uh, richard bamford last week about whether you can get value pinot noir he suggested romania and there you go and to end a luxurious late harvest tokai a gold medal winner with 97 points MAD 2017 Late Harvest Tokai was described like this, an excellent example of a Tokai nose with lovely dried apricot, honey, straw and lime peel notes. The palate is rich and ripe with lovely acidity and freshness, loads of spice and real finesse. A benchmark for Tokai, the judges said. Uh, MAD, by the way, is a town at the heart of the Tokai region and that's at noblegreenwines.co.uk for 22 pounds and that's it from the drinking hour with david kermode for this edition thank you for tuning in and thanks also to my guests this week if you can stay in touch then do Uh, you can follow food fm radio on instagram and twitter or you can follow me i'm mr venusaurus on instagram and twitter perhaps you can do both Or you can email us with feedback or ideas. It's thedrinkinghour at foodfmradio.com. For now, though, it's goodbye.
0: The Drinking Hour on Food FM.